Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode 291. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Today's episode is brought to you by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lended's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, featuring many of the biggest names in fintech. We'll have the CEOs of Afterpay, Figure, Brex, Varro, Dave, Finicity, just to name a few, as well as many leaders from traditional finance. Lendit's 2020 event was also held online, with many people saying it was the best virtual event they'd ever attended. Lendit is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lendit Fintech USA, where you'll meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com USA. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Lex Sokolin. He is the global fintech co-head and the chief marketing officer at Consensus. Now, this is quite the epic episode. It's actually the longest episode I've ever recorded in 291 shows, but I didn't want to edit it down because I feel like what we cover here is really important. We're talking about two of the hottest topics in fintech right now, and that is decentralized finance or DeFi and non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Now, we, we go into each of these in some depth. We provide sort of you know examples of how to get started, what it really means for, for not just for fintech, but for the broader economy. And also Lex provides his perspective on where he thinks these two really hot trends are going. It was a truly fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Lex. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Okay. So let's just get started with, uh, with giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. I know as we were chatting earlier, you're still you're, you're living in the UK, have been for many years, but why don't you give us a little bit of background before you got to consensus? Sure. So I've got a lot of New York in me, uh, now a little bit of London, and I also have a little bit of Moscow for uh, uh, sort of a secret agenda. You never know. Uh, yeah, but I've, I've kind of hit up different parts of the world, but really uh, grew up in New York and, and consider that my home. And, and that, you know, New York has a gravity to it. Uh, and so that gravity is Wall Street. Uh, I, as, as many immigrant kids got uh, pulled towards Wall Street and so started at Lehman Brothers in, in 06 uh, in a strategy function for the wealth management, asset management business, and kind of got trained up on, on an analytical skill set, thinking a lot about money. And was very fortunate, I think, to have the crash happen very quickly. Fortunate for two reasons. The first is it didn't really affect affect me deeply. I, I was just the, you know, an analyst associate a couple of years uh, out of school. And then also I didn't miss it. I didn't miss the experience of, of being in the 2008 crash. And I think uh, it's, it was such a rich experience that many people who, you know, graduated in 2010 or 2015 or 2018 would benefit from seeing, seeing a, a real nice meltdown and everything. And that gave me, permission to separate from Wall Street and do my first startup around 2009, 2010. Uh, I was at Columbia at the time. And so buffered myself with government, government loans to subsidize uh, uh, robo-advice, uh, robo-advice discovery and kind of ideation. And so I started a company called Nasdaq Wealth, which was a B2C robo, very quickly turned into a private label digital wealth platform, which is now called Advisor Engine. We raised about 50 million from Wisdom Tree and sold to Franklin Templeton last year. And so, you know, I spent I spent a chunky amount of time in digital wealth and kind of thinking about personal finance, how people hold assets, how they invest, uh, why they do it, the the behavioral bits around it. And then sort of dove head head first into the financial advisor value chain. And so you start talking about uh, data and custody and trading rebalancing and equities and fixed income and intermediation and the the whole sort of machine, the whole factory of how actually the, the investing side of finance works. And around 2016, I I left the company and 
wanted to really look around and go deeper and joined an equity research firm called Autonomous Research to start their frontier technology kind of fintech practice. And so the, most of the work there was about yelling at hedge fund managers who allocate large checks to traditional financial services companies about how everything they're doing is doomed, none of their investments will work, and Google will have destroyed all of it. You know, and so it was, it was good rhetorical practice because I feel like you can't, you can't really persuade people using, using normal words in, in that environment. The, the additional advantage of the work I did at Autonomous was basically th- three years of thinking across the industry. So I'm getting out of wealth to banking and lending and payments and insurance and seeing the same structural pattern repeat. You know, there's no difference between a wealth tech platform and a digital lending private label platform and a banking as a service private label platform. And and then if you melt that down to APIs, it's sort of all the same stuff underneath as well in terms of just from a macro perspective of what it's doing to the industry. And then the other dimension is the the actual things that are novel, like the platform shifts that matter. And so putting advisors or bankers or underwriters or carriers or whatever it is into a phone, it's, that's nice. You know, we, sort, we did that. Uh, it's over. Uh, there's no point anymore in the sense of like, it'll continue to happen, but it's not where the innovation is really bubbling up. And so you know, if you think about that as distribution, the question is what, is, what is left to do in finance and what hasn't been done? And that's, that's really what's taken me to blockchain uh, and programmable blockchains as a theme, I think, is completely fundamental to what's, what the financial services industry will look like. And you know, sort of the, the punchline there is financial manufacturing. But let me pause before I go down the rabbit hole. Okay. Well, actually, why don't we go down it for a little bit and just tell us, you know, tell us exactly what you do at Consensus. So I joined Consensus about two years ago now. I do a couple of things there with the main one being to co-lead our fintech group called Consensus Codify, uh, which is a product development group responsible for building software products around digital assets, tokenization, decentralized finance, stable coins, really you, you name it, the intersection between large financial institutions, B2C users of, of crypto uh, networks, Every, everything that relates to enabling these actors financially, helping them figure out how to use decentralized finance, helping them figure out what it means to, to, to have blockchain-based currencies, to have financial infrastructure. You know, that's, that's something that we do at Consensus Codify. I also spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, leading the marketing team for the firm as a whole, and then thinking about uh, tokenization you know, token launches and, and, and economics for the sector. So it's a little bit of a word salad, but this, this is such a, you know, it's a broad space and that's why I'm really attracted to it. Right, right. Well, okay, well, let's get right into, into it. I want to I wanna first talk about uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, and I want to dig, you know, fairly deep in here. I'd love to get your take. Firstly, let's just start with how do you define it, particularly for, for, for lay people? It's a lovely word. <laughs> it's a lovely word, decentralized finance. You know, is decentralized good? Is decentralized bad? Are you a conservative or are you a liberal? You know, like, or are you a libertarian? Are you an anarchist? It's a catch-all phrase the same way that fintech is a catch-all phrase. I think of it really as financial infrastructure that sits on programmable blockchains. But I'm also a finance geek and kind of a industry insider. And so I overcomplicate the answer. You can, you can, the first split that you want to do for DeFi is separate out the asset class. So the thing that you invest in, the thing that you want to own, the token, the security, whatever it is, right? So there are like Bitcoin as an asset class, a cryptocurrencies as an asset class. So within DeFi, there are things that you can buy that represent exposure to some to something, let's say, to some economic activity. So there, there is a bunch of assets there in DeFi. That's largely why people are, are enjoying flooding into it is to, is to get access to the returns from projects, early stage venture style projects in DeFi. The second related but different point is that DeFi is 
financial middleware. It just happens to be correctly made. Like, I don't know if this is a personal point of view, if this is a consensus point of view, but once you sort of grok that blockchains are where computing is going to happen, meaning, you know, we've gone from large warehouses doing computational work to personal computers, to then laptops, to then uh, the internet has cloud and the cloud runs programs. And then your mobile phone is really a window into a gigantic cloud and the cloud executes the software and you access it through your phone. And the next computing paradigm is we all run nodes of a network that agrees on a collective truth and executes software against it. You know, so once you understand that the next computing paradigm is, is programmable blockchains, DeFi starts to make sense as just financial software on these programmable blockchains. And then because you know, programs speak to each other, they're not written in different languages, they're not on paper, they're not across different standards. And so you have you know, fixed income and insurance and asset management and payments all written in the same language and in the same standards. You know, so as in the traditional world, you would think of a card network like Avisa has almost nothing in common in terms of its infrastructure with private equity investment shop KKR, which has nothing in common with the infrastructure of something like TradeWeb and fixed income electronic trading, which has nothing in common with the value stack represented by InvestNet or AssetMark for, for portfolio management. And DeFi, it does. It's all the same. It's all just software and Ethereum. And it does all of these things across the different functions. You know, and you can look at a super app like Ant Financial, and it is obvious that these functions are distributed together. Consumers use payments and lending and banking and savings and insurance together because no human being cares at all about the separation between these products unless right. you work for a regulator. And now from a manufacturing perspective, from a the factory that makes these financial products, they also now do not care at all what asset class they're making. They're just software on a computer. And so for me, you know, if I go back to the, the sort of break between there's the asset class, the things that the factory makes, and then there's the factory itself, you know, I'm endlessly encouraged and, and motivated by the factory because it is the Google or Spotify moment for the financial industry right now. Right. Right. Okay. So let's let's talk about you know getting started in DeFi. And I, I've done over the last couple of months. I, I've sort of educated myself. Um, I have a I have a I would say a, a, a working knowledge about. I have a MetaMask wallet, which is I think the I believe the consensus made wallet. And uh, I've got an Aave account and a Compound account. Uh, and I also own those tokens separately, which are totally you know, obviously separate to what the, the DeFi investment is. And I. You know, I bought some dye on you know on Aave and Compound, and I bought some other things, and I'm getting my returns coming in. But this is really so. That's a that this is one aspect of DeFi, which is the lending aspect, and I'm I am you know lending money, lending my dye out to someone, getting a return on it. But is that is that sort of if if you look because a lot of listeners are not going to have anywhere near yes. the knowledge that you have. What do you, how do you reckon, is, is my sort of on-ramp to getting started in DeFi pretty typical or how do you recommend people to get started? I think the, the first kind of conceptual shift that you need to make is because the space is now like an expanding fractal, it's very complex at the edges, you know, and it's only going to be more complex at the edges. Things don't go back, they'll, they'll go forward. I think that the first step is just to understand what exactly is going on with blockchain-based finance before even you know going to 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 pick a name and buy it, right? So you can have Apple and GS and Bark and DB, right, as stock names. And similarly, if you were to throw 500 letter acronyms from the S&P 500 at people, they'd be like, this is all nonsense. And that's, that's a reasonable reaction to when you see a print of DeFi tickers. But it's no different than if you were to see a, a list of any other financial tickers. So I think the, the first step is just like, why is my experience so different here? What is, what is going on? You know, and the analogy that I default to is this concept of the wallet. 
you know, if you have a physical wallet in your pocket and there's some cash in it, you walk around, there's cash in your wallet. Maybe there's some cards in there. The cards do different stuff. They might be loyalty cards or they might be credit cards. They might, they might have your identity on there. You might have keys in your pocket as well. So you're walking around with this physical wallet and you go to a store. And when you go to a store, the store doesn't hold your wallet. You know, you go to a Starbucks, they don't hold your wallet. You take out your wallet from your pocket and you give them your card into their payment processor and they charge you and on your way you go. And they don't get to keep your wallet once you leave. In the internet world, that's really changed quite a bit. So if you go to Amazon or if you go to, you know, any retailer these days, what happens is that that retailer has a locker and in that locker is all your stuff. You leave your credit cards in every store you go to. They're just there in their locker. And then you also give them a bunch of other stuff like your identity, you know? And so imagine you walked into a Starbucks and they said, hi, great to see you. Give us your name and password to open your locker so that we can take your money out. And it's just, it's just like a crazy, crazy paradigm if you think about it that way. And so what the, the blockchain-based finance approach does is reverses it back where you again have a wallet that the stores do not. And this goes back to the DeFi protocol question, which is Compound and Aave and the rest of these companies, they don't have your account. They don't have your money in the same sense that a bank account does or that a, you know Amazon does when you give it your payment information. With, with a bank account, it literally has your money sitting on, on the bank balance sheet. What is happening in the DeFi sense is that you, the user, have a MetaMask wallet installed. What the wallet really does is it gives you access to a particular location, an address on the blockchain. So it stores and it, it encrypts your access to it, which is like a key. It's actually called the key. And then you're, you're the one holding that key. And that is what gives you control over what happens to, to the money that's maintained by this network. And then when you come to Aave or Compound or Dai or, or, or uh, MakerDAO uh, or Yearn or any of these other projects, they're like a little vending machine. You know, they, they perform a transformation function. It's, it's a little math robot. And they ask you, well, you have to click on a button first that says, I want to give you this, right? Like I want to put the coin into, into the pinball machine. I'd like, or I want to, I want to buy a Coke. And you know, in your, in one case, it might be, I want to put a bunch of my money into a box and get another type of money out. I want to collateralize this black box with ETH and I want to get a USD cash equivalent out. And there's a mathematical transformation function that allows you to do that. And that's, you know, make or down and die. And all of these DeFi protocols are essentially these, these little robots that you can take money out of your pocket or out of your portfolio, permission them to access it, and then permission them to do stuff to that money. And so I just wanted to kind of open up that paradigm shift that, that really gives authority and power back to the, to the user over their assets. I think the, the adjacent question is like, well, what should you invest in? What should you do? I think there's some basic functions that, that have been developed. The ones that you described are, are a great starting point. So, you know, number one is put in collateral into a box and get a US dollar stablecoin, uh, cash equivalent. Another primitive would be take an asset and receive an interest rate on it for lending it out or borrow an asset at some interest rate. This is like a margin desk. It's not borrowing and lending in the, in the sense of underwriting a risk. It's in the sense of somebody wants to go long and short. So it's just like a, a Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs uh, capital markets desk. And so you can get an interest rate on giving your, your asset to, for somebody to, to borrow and pay you for. And then you know from there, there are more complex things as well. There is stuff that looks a lot like asset management, like a big fixed income fund where a community of people make investment decisions on your behalf and they might be maximizing interest rates. Uh, they might be maximizing usage rewards, which are called farming. And so you, you, know, you, you might hop in and 
provide money into what's called a vault, but really looks like a fund. And then I think another one that that bears talking about is providing liquidity, which is essentially allowing you to act as an institutional market maker where you're you're putting money into a box that people trade against. So you're sort of like the market maker on a stock exchange floor, but you're doing this again through through code. And so those are those are the ones that have been the most popular. Uh, of course, trading uh, is enabled, insurance is enabled as well. So you, you, we're we're really sort of at the at the edge of that unfolding complexity that that I started talking about. Right, right, yeah, and and it, it is super interesting because the thing that struck me because I, I remember when I first bought Ripple, I think it was like back in like twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen, and it was it took me all weekend to figure out how just to buy it. And what I was struck with, with the MetaMask wallet, it's, it's, it's really no more difficult than applying for you know, a bank account. Or it's easier actually than a, it's than so just, much it's, easier. It's so, it's, and you've got a Chrome plugin that you could just go and, uh, and do it. And then I, I was surprised when I went to these other sites and it just sort of, it sort of recognized that I had a MetaMask wallet and, and it was, it was really simple, but I think, I mean, it seems to me that right now it's really crypto enthusiasts that are, that are really creating, creating, you know, MetaMask wallets and, and other other types of wallets. What, what's it going to take to to get it more into the mainstream, where someone who might have a you know four hundred one k that's invested in the stock market and knows nothing about finance, and when are they going to? What's it going to take for them to get a wallet and start using uh, some of the DeFi features? So a couple of things on that. As, as you can tell, brevity is not a, a virtue that I have. Um, <laughs> That's okay. You know, so the first point is like, people love to hate on the crypto user experience, but I legitimate, I agree with you. And I, I think that the crypto user experience at this point is very much on par with uh, B2C fintech because many fintech entrepreneurs are now in the crypto space and have just recreated what was once novel and interesting and, and now is delivered through Goldman Sachs, Marcus to millions of people, you know, they've recreated them on, on top of the blockchain paradigm. And the other day I had to, I had to fill out wire instructions, you know, and this was an electronic experience. I was on a bank website. I was just typing in where the money was going and I had to put in the bank account and bank number of the destination. And it felt like a totally insane moment. I mean, this is a small thing. People have had much worse experience with, you know, wires and and getting them over the line. But like I had to go to a PDF and then the routing number was on the PDF and I can copy and I can copy the number once. And then I put that into the first field that says account number. And then the second field, it confirms that the account number is real. So I have to type it, you know, I can't copy paste it in there. So I have to type it. And so I'm typing a nine digit bank account number from memory, from what I'm seeing and comparing it to a PDF. And then, you know, if it, if it matches the first field, then it's good. And that's that, that's the security. And it, it is so unbelievably awkward and error prone. And this is why we have settlement issues and reconciliation issues and why literally thousands of people in finance wake up every day to match one Excel file to, to another and say, these are the breaks. Our firm has to pay millions of dollars to reconcile that. You know, and with MetaMask, like you might be initially put off by the fact that you have this long hash, which is your your address, and you have to copy it around and paste it in different places. But it's unbelievably easy. You're just, gra- you're, you, you press on the number and it copies it and then you paste it somewhere and you're done and it's never wrong, you know? And it just, from a user experience, it's really, I, I think we're over the hump. You know, this, the second point around how do we get more, more normal, regular people into it is, I do think it's worth pausing on whether that is still a true concern. You know, we, we know that Coinbase has, 90 billion in AUM and, or let's say in, in custody, custodied assets and about 43 million users. So 43 million out of 300 is a pretty good market penetration for, you know, for, for the United States. It's, I, it, it's an amazingly high number. And as a robo-advisor entrepreneur, it, it sort of, it dawns on me now that it was never Betterment, it was always Coinbase. 
the robo advisor was never betterment, you know, an, an additional, and I love betterment. I, I have nothing but respect for them. I think they're ethical and they execute super well and all this stuff. Uh, we'll put Wealthfront to the side. You know, so, but they've got 28 billion or so of passive asset allocation and Coinbase is going to go public at a hundred billion bucks. And it's, it was always about the novelty and the next generation there. And so I think the actual adoption is, is much higher than some of us who've been in the space for a while feel. And then, you know, when you look even at MetaMask, which is inside of the decentralized finance sort of explosion, our monthly average users are now at two and a half million per month. Huh. These are people who every month use the, the wallet. Two and a half million of actives is pretty high, is, is pretty, pretty high, even when yeah. you compare it to the Robin Hoods and the, the Chimes and so on, who are going to print you the 10 million users, but you look at the actives and it's, it's, it's roughly comparable. So it feels to me that we are now in the, we're, I think we're past the early adopters. I think we're past the, just the, the crypto geeks. And I think for the basic functions of accessing Ethereum, maybe holding NFTs, maybe holding the, you know, the, the DeFi tokens, I do think we have that adoption. Yeah. But there's still more to do. I think a lot of it will be done from the off-ramps. So Coinbase and Binance extending into uh -huh. the programmability. But again, I think there's a lot of progress already. Right, and, and I should also point out you can you know, Coinbase have their own wallet, which you can use in in some of these DeFi applications as well. You don't have to use MetaMask. You so anyway, I want to switch gears and talk about NFTs. You just mentioned them; they are the hottest thing. I've in the last two weeks, I have seen more articles on the NFTs. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had a big piece this morning. You have uh, you know, Marketplace NPR talking about it. Uh, you've got you know NBA Top Shot is being is is now kind of, uh, I would almost say it's mainstream, but let's, uh, let's just, you know, it's obviously stands for non-fungible tokens. Again, give us your take on why it's so popular. Yeah, so they're fungible currencies like the dollar. If I give you a dollar, if I give you another dollar, you don't care, it's the same. And ETH and Bitcoin and even the tokens of these DeFi protocols, they're, they're all sort of the same and divisible and fractional. Non-fungible tokens are a, a unique object, broadly speaking. You can have additions, you know, you can have 10 of the same unique object, like you can have 10 posters or prints of an Andy Warhol, but they, they're designed to be the, the one unique thing. And so it can be a visual image that an artist makes, like the, the digital artist Beeple who... I think has a six and a half million Christie's auction going on right now. So speaking about the mainstream or it's the videos of sports moments like NBA Top Shot, right? Where you got fans collecting basically Harry Potter frames, you know, moving images <laughs> of, um, of people they love and admire and just want to look at all the time and, and feel that this, this is rare. Why does it matter? And there are some, starting criticisms that misunderstand what's actually going on, right? Because you can say, it's nice you've got an image. I've got that image. I just screenshot it. What's unique about your image? And, the, you know, the NFT is supposed to be unique and owned. And it goes in that same wallet that I was talking about when you're walking around and, you know, Starbucks doesn't have a locker. Uh, you have the wallet in, in your pocket. And similarly, now in your wallet is your collectible card of LeBron or whatever. And so the, the first criticism, which I think is incorrect, is I can just take a screenshot, I can right-click and save. And the answer to why that's wrong is the same answer as to what's the difference between the Mona Lisa and the poster of Mona Lisa. The poster of the Mona Lisa carries the same visual information. And it doesn't matter because nobody cares about the visual information itself. The visual information is a very small part of the pleasure of what the Mona Lisa generates, right? It's the the original artwork. It is the history of that object being originally made by the creator of that object who's famous and has social capital. Um, it is the historical context of what has happened to that uh, piece of art, who has owned it, how has it passed through different environments over time. 
you know, and, and then it has cultural importance. The one that's hanging here is important and the print in your, in your dorm room is not. And so it's the exact same dynamic here. Just because you have a copy doesn't mean you have the original and the original is the thing that the artist made. And then you can get to kind of the discussion of let's have two artists. One is a painter and makes beautiful, uh, beautiful portraits. And then another is using oil paint. And then another is a painter that makes absolutely gorgeous portraits, but they use, you know, they use their iPad and Photoshop. And they spend, they spend an identical amount of time creating that beautiful portrait. Why is it that you value the physical but not the digital? In part because the digital is infinitely reproducible and so there's no price, whereas the physical is scarce. So now what's happened is we have a mechanism that says this digital work is scarce and authentic. And you know, I, I'm not here to sort of pump up crypto prices. That's, that's not the, the point of the storytelling, but the, the shift is, is like a breath of fresh air for creators, for digital creators. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there are fewer, fewer non-digital creators and more and more digital creators because we're all stuck in our COVID worlds. And, you know, it's, it's sort of obvious. Here's my sort of, I'll try to conclude on this. This is the framework I have. So what Napster did, and I'm part, I grew up on Napster as my defining moment in the early 2000s was it massively, it, it exploded the, the demand side, the, consu- the people who got to enjoy music because it crashed the price to zero of all music. And so you go along the demand curve, right? Uh, one supply and demand kind of cross, and then you crash the price to zero. And so all, anybody who wants music now has access to it. Massive increase in people enjoying creative output and file sharing and all that. Artists got crushed. Lars Ulrich of Metallica was particularly unhappy. Teenagers were jailed. It was a fun time. And so now we're in the opposite moment of that, where all of a sudden you have digital scarcity on creative output, digital creative output. And so you can have markets and economies around it. And so you're, you're seeing a massive supply on, on, the, on the supply side. You're a massive entry on the supply side. So more musicians, more artists, anybody who knows how to deal with an audience and make music or videos or art is now trying to create more stuff that is blockchain anchored because they feel like they can get paid for it. So it is the, the I would say, took 20 years to balance out what, what file sharing and Napster did. And that's what we're looking at now. Right. And I actually want to, I want to dig into the weeds a little bit, if I may, because I was listening to a, a recent podcast you did, and I'll link to that in the show notes about, you're talking about the music and creators and you can, like, I, I want to talk about the how smart contracts are kind of incorporated here. And I think on your, on your show, you, you, you gave the example of someone creating an original piece of music and then someone else sort of taking that original piece and then you know, adapting it to their own uh, and, and, having, and having that be a, a new original piece. But the original creator also gets a cut and it's all done through smart contracts. So can you explain a little bit about the mechanics? Yeah. So it all starts with why Ethereum and programmable blockchains are valuable. And they're valuable because they are their digital property rights enforcement system. And that's useful when you have economies. Like the reason finance is has been the first use case on Ethereum is because economies and trading and markets are very natural to the system, which says, this is real, this is not, you know, here's money, here's instruments. And so it, it is naturally the case that, it, that the economic features of the creative industry are what is the emergent, the obvious case coming out of here. You know, it's not about like, how can I look at digital art? Uh, It's about how can I have exchange and venues of exchange and then royalty payments or uh, commissions against this art? It It is software capitalism. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people from the remix culture of the 2000s or, or digital artists, digitally native artists who bristle at NFTs because they grew up on 
file sharing, free remixing, copy left, you know, like hate the lawyers, hate, you know, finally we're free of that. And this goes the other way. This brings back, this is DRM to the max. Uh, you know, it's, it brings back power to the artists, but it is, it is participatory and optional. Like you, you don't have to buy the original print of the CD. You can just always listen to it on Spotify. So the, I think what you're referencing, it applies both to art and to, to music where let's say you have a piece of art that you've made and you've posted it on a platform like OpenSea or, or Rarible or one of the, the other ones. And you're the, you're the author. And so you might specify that you as the author get a five or 10% commission in all secondary markets. Every time it's resold, you get a, you get a commission. So let's say you sell your first piece for a hundred bucks. You get the hundred bucks and somebody else owns it. And then two years goes by and you're super famous. You know, you're, you're amazing. You're really big on Twitter. And so whoever owned your piece is now able to sell it for $100,000, even though they bought it for you for 100. That's a life-changing event for that owner of the digital asset. But then you're also getting 10%. You know, so you're going to get 10 grand on that essentially you know, commission or royalty payment in perpetuity every time the exchange happens that that revenue comes back to you as the creator. That is basically the collapse of the entire creative media, you know, intermediation value chain from a financial perspective, which again is obvious if you think about fintech. Fintech has been cutting out intermediation for, for commerce and for trade and so on. And this is what's happening here. Same thing for music, right? So music is unbelievably... I did, a, I did a research into this last week. Music is the structure of royalties and ownership and who gets paid for what and if it's used in a commercial versus if it's used on a Spotify stream, massively complex economic structure. You know, but to simplify it to the basics, the artist gets a very small percentage for the, the streaming or the usage of the piece of music. And often if they're, you know, they might not even have the rights to the actual thing that they perform. They might, you know, their music label might have given them the song, they perform it, and then the music label also gets paid for for the usage of the the information in the song and you only get for the performance rights. Anyway, there are now DJs and musicians who are minting their CDs, like the, the original CDs to, to their fan base. And then there are mechanisms by which, you know, royalties from the resale of, of that music go to the musicians, even when their fans purchase it. And so we're very early in these dynamics. They're, they're very much not, you know, not polished, but that, that is the promise, I think, for, for the disruption inside of the value chain in, in, the, in the creative industry. Right. No, I know. I just saw it. You meant like Kings of Leon, I think it was just on the weekend, had to release their new album as an NFT. And uh, so that's, a, that's, that's groundbreaking in and of itself. I, I want to ask about you know, Square and Tidal, which you, you wrote about recently. And you know, I, I read so many articles about it and I felt like most people didn't have any idea what the hell Jack Dorsey was thinking when he, uh, he, he bought, he spent this money on title and you gave this long piece about it. I'd love to sort of hit some of the, some of your thoughts on that, because the way I look at it, as you, you, you put in this piece, you know, you saw how, how broken the, the, the financial industry, the financial part of the music industry is where these people are getting, you know, like a third of a cent for one play on Spotify and you just can't, you know, whereas you could have made decent living selling a few thousand records or 10,000 records back in the eighties and nineties. Now you, uh, you can't, you have to be a megastar to make a, uh, to make a living, but this maybe um, touch briefly on what you think the squid, like what's what Jack Dorsey is thinking by, you know, acquiring the uh, title, which for all intents and purposes was, yeah, it was not. It was really a second tier or third tier player in the in the music streaming space. So I, I write this for the fintech blueprint, which is my weekly newsletter, and then it gets um, the long takes are syndicated on CoinDesk, and you wouldn't believe the amount of flack I got from the crypto community for this NFT article about where where I framed it through the perspective of Square and Title. Uh, you know, telling the NFT story through the perspective of this deal, rather than trying to tell it through the perspective of Ethereum. And so I just torn to shreds for not shilling ETH, which is, uh, you know, it's like, maybe check the body of my work. But if you, the, the core outline is this, 
And I, you know, I don't know if it's a, it, it's not A to B, it's like logic steps A through Z. So Tidal is maybe a third tier streaming service. Um, it does print 170 million in revenue and it has 2 million users. So, you know, if, if they were a FinTech, they'd be 3 billion. Um, right. So there's that. I think even on a cash flow basis, it's not not a terrible deal at all. It's good for Jay Z, who I think bought it for fifty. Anyway, so it is a it is a music streaming service, and it's got really cool people involved. They're just cool, right? Like I, they're they're not the the main point is that they have a huge audience, and Square has the history. Square has a, an interesting history. Arc uh, Arc Invest talks about this very, very well in their research. How did Cash App totally? How did they completely run around Venmo? I mean, Venmo was so far ahead and was growing at a really fast clip, and out of nowhere, it felt like Cash App came out and caught up, and then overtook their growth curve. Now, now being the primary P2P money movement app. We'll put Zell to the side. And so how did they do that? And the answer is they did it through really clever growth hacking, which is they partnered with the hip hop community and then with the influencer community. And instead of like spending money on Google ads, they, they let the influencers and the artists do giveaways. You know, so, hey, I'm... I'm a musician. If you want a hundred bucks, tell me what your Cash App wallet is. And here, you know, you drop the link to your Cash App wallet and and that person sends you the giveaway. So like, I don't know which artist, but it'd be cool, you know, for for like Jay-Z to send me a hundred bucks. And all I have to do is uh, drop a line with my uh, with my account to Cash App on on a Twitter thread. And this is what worked for them unbelievably well, really smart, clever marketing. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I think it, it was definitely connected to, I'm guessing it was connected to Jack's understanding of social media because of running Twitter and understanding people's psychology on Twitter and all of this. And so that is the, that is the Square growth hack. Now, of course, Square also has Bitcoin as an asset that you trade inside the app. And, there are teams specifically dedicated to crypto development, I think both inside of Square and Twitter. And it's no secret that Jack is uh, an enthusiast for, for crypto infrastructure more generally. And so if you kind of connect the lines, what can you do with title? Well, first, you've just bought yourself your, your go-to-market strategy. You actually own your go-to-market strategy because you, you understand how to market through the artists who are cool. No, no other fintech really outside of a couple of teenager ones using TikTok understand how to do this and, and reach the populations served by these artists. So that's number one. Number two is you, you're a small business bank if you are square. And oh boy, are there a lot of small businesses inside of Tidal. You know, every single musician is a small business that can now have every single financial service as part of their streaming experience. And I think that's, that's really important, right? They're also buying an, an additional customer base for their B2B side. But then if you, re, if you take one step further in terms of thinking through NFTs and the economics of scarce digital art and music, you can kind of paint forward a vision of the world where title is integrated as a bank, but is also a wallet of the authentic music, of the actual music objects. So, you know, the streaming stuff is a way to pay publishers. It's a way to pay royalties. It's the mathematics that creates royalties. And if you own both the bank and the the streaming service, and you have the direct relationship with the artist, and you're able to transform the publisher into a blockchain-based smart contract, and therefore you don't need an intermediary to do the artist relationships and so on, it becomes a really novel and strange and weird, but it's like a bundle of options, right? It's, it's a, in a black swan event where this intuition is right, this is a massively valuable company. Uh, and I think that's probably underneath it. 
Right, right. Anyway, we, we've gone over time, but before we before we uh, leave it here, I do want to get you to, to paint a picture, if you would, about the future of finance. I feel like this we're in this fascinating time right now where you know we're, we're, the last ten years of fintech we've done we've had some really good incremental change. It's been there's been a lot of good work done. There's been, been I think uh, some really impressive uh, impressive developments, but it feels like now we're in this time of potentially just rewiring the the core of the whole financial system. And so maybe you could just give us your vision of what this is going to look like, you know, as sort of DeFi, NFTs, obviously they are related as they become more mainstream. Trying so hard to, to be precise. The mistake of the last decade of FinTech, which is really FinTech using that word is is thinking that a digital storefront is enough. You know, um, yes, Netflix started out by mailing you DVDs. Remember? Who cares? That's embarrassing. It's wrong. It's done. It's over. <laughs> Nobody cares, right? I spent a chunky six years of my life building wealth tech software for financial advisors so they can deliver a website to their clients or an, or you know an app to their clients. Okay. You're talking about a value chain that many people who are growing up in Fortnite will never touch in their lives. Because if you are a $100 million investor who has grown up in Fortnite, you're not using a Swiss private bank. You're just not. Right. You, you wouldn't be caught dead using a Swiss private bank. And I love Swiss private banks as somebody who has like, you know, Lehman Brothers would have loved to be UBS. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that model. And so I I think what we're going to realize and see now very clearly is that digital manufacturing is much more important than digital distribution. And that in every, in every disruptive cliche, things that are at this point sort of like lame to talk about, which is you know, what happened to media from the internet and Google, what happened to transportation from, from Uber, what happened to music from Spotify. In all of those cases, it's not distribution, it's manufacturing. There is no internet of paper books. There is no Spotify of CD-ROMs. It doesn't work. It's a waste of time. And so I think we are, we are seeing that shift now where digitally native manufacturing of financial products actually is going on. And I, you know, in digital distribution is like, well, of course, obviously there's going to be someone, uh, whether a new entrepreneur or whether Goldman Sachs or whether Robinhood, that's just going to bolt on their consumer footprint to the new stuff. And we also know what the outcome is in terms of price, right? So price, price has to collapse because it costs nothing to manufacture and then the value chain collapses as well. And so to me, that, that industry outcome is really, it, it feels very clear, you know, especially in a world where Google Pay is a 20 million user neobank that's sitting on top of banking as a service and has done every sort of wiggle possible in order to not be a bank. And at the same time, provide all these financial services and like, give it five years and they're going to connect to the Amazon cloud for Ethereum and the end, you know, like literally the end. If Amazon is running the Ethereum cloud with every single financial services open source protocol in it and Google is connecting to Amazon to distribute all of it, what, what else exists? Like, I don't know. And so I think the challenge, the question is how much simultaneous time periods are we going to live in, right? Because you know, I, I think you're, you're deep in the payments ecosystem as well. And so, you know, there, there are multiple rails that are alive today at the same time. People use cash, people use QR codes, they use electronic payments, they use still point of sale terminals, they've got the card networks, you know, there's faster payments, there's ACH, lots and lots of rails. It's not a, it's not a winner take all. And it's very possible that we're going to have just a separate economy for kind of new finance that is sits alongside Wall Street and you know Silicon Valley and fintech and over time like Amazon goes from 1% share to 20% share of all of commerce. I think the you know and I don't know what share that's what the destination is. I think we can the anecdote I have is you can be on a road in the US and you can have a horse and buggy and an Amish person on that road 
And then next to them, you can have, you know, some chugger from the nineties on uh, eating gasoline uh, and being a, like a very dirty car, but with a motor. And then next to that, you can have a self-driving Tesla that's fully electric and it's the same road and it's the same, you know, it's all the same people in the same country, but they're living in different time periods. And so we are right at that edge of just, I think, a completely new financial infrastructure emerging. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. It's a very exciting time, uh, Lex. It was, it's always great to, to chat with you and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, see ya. Well, I don't know about you, but my head is spinning after listening to Lex talk there for the last 50 plus minutes. I feel like, you know, this is, you know, we, we've had such, uh, you know, amazing things happen, I think, in the last 10 years of fintech. But as Lex said, and, and, and really I, I tend to agree that this is, that's just, that was the precursor for what's really coming. And I don't know whether NFTs are just going to be this fad that are going to uh, uh, just crash and burn, but I think the technology behind them, the smart contracts, you know, having having these things really be intelligent, you know, ways to kind of uh, transact. I, I think that concept is here to stay. It just makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, whether we get there in five years, in 10 years or in, or 20 years, I think this, this type of, this, this is the way finance is going. That's why I wanted to make it such, I didn't want to edit it out and make it, made it such a long show because I felt like it was important to get into the detail here. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. Lended's flagship event is happening online this year on April 27 to 29, featuring many of the biggest names in fintech. We will have the CEOs of Afterpay, Figure, Brex, Varro, Dave, Finicity, just to name a few, as well as many leaders from traditional finance. After a successful virtual event in 2020, Lendit is setting the bar even higher in 2021. So join the fintech community at Lendit Fintech USA, where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Sign up today at lendit.com slash USA.